Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1 to chapter 19, verse 8. Welcome, if you are with us as a visitor here to Christ the King, we are returning this morning to our very long series in the books of First and Second Samuel after a couple of weeks away from it for Ascension and Pentecost Sundays. So that whether you're visiting for the first time or you've been here all along, it might help if I give a brief recap of exactly where we are as we come into chapter 18. Three weeks ago, we were with King David after he had fled Jerusalem. David's son Absalom had led a conspiracy. Remember that? 2 Samuel 15, verse 13. A messenger told David, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David understood what Absalom would do. It was Absalom who'd carefully orchestrated the murder of Amnon, then fled to Gesher outside Israel, where Absalom stayed for three years. Then for another two years, when Absalom was back in Jerusalem, David refused to see his son. So Absalom, if you recall, burns Joab's fields in order to gain an audience through him with his own father, not because Absalom wanted to be reconciled with David, quite the opposite. Instead, now from within and from the gates of Jerusalem itself, Absalom would plot his conspiracy. Chapter 15, verse 6 says, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He proclaimed himself king in Hebron, and the text says the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And so David fled. And from chapter 15, verse 13 on, we watched as David went through the lowest point of his kingdom, driven out of Jerusalem into the wilderness. We watched as Absalom came to Jerusalem and then horrifically does as Ahithophel advises him in chapter 16, verse 21. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. There can be no doubt concerning Absalom's intentions. Only one thing remains to cement his rebellion. It's the death of David. All of which, dear friends, I say up front here, not just to review where we've been, 
But in order to make this initial point, as we come into 2 Samuel 18, Absalom deserved to die. Absalom deserved to die, and he does die. Our passage divides into two parts. Chapter 18, verses 1 to 18, is the first of those parts, and then the rest of it is the second part. In those first 18 verses, the focus of the narrator is Absalom's death. And I think, and I'll try to show you, that we are left with no doubt as to its justness. The narrator wants us to see that Absalom deserved to die. The thing we have to grapple with in this chapter is that that's not what David wanted to happen. Let's look at this first section together. We're not told how much time has passed between the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18 in the narrative, but it was enough for David and his followers to be ready for battle now. You remember from three weeks ago, perhaps the end of chapter 17, Absalom and his substantial army now had camped somewhere east of the Jordan. David and those loyal to him had made it even further to Mahanaim. David and his men were exhausted and hungry, but we saw how the Lord had preserved them how the Lord had preserved them from any immediate pursuit by Absalom, and then how at the end of chapter 17, the Lord had abundantly provided for them in the wilderness so that they were strengthened. As we come then to verse 1 of our chapter, where it says, David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and David sent out the army one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. No, you won't, David's men reply. They know the stakes. They know what this battle is about. It's Absalom versus David. That's the point. Their lives aren't what matters here. It's either going to be David dead or it's going to be Absalom dead. That's what will determine the future for David's kingdom. The men get that. The king stays back, verse 4. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. But then comes that order in verse 5. David addresses his three commanders now in the hearing of all the men and says, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And I know the narrator doesn't say this. The narrator doesn't say a lot. But I think, given the rest of our text, we can pretty well assume it that that order from David had to have come as a shock to Joab and Abishai and Ittai. That's my read. Don't you think? I mean, deal gently with Absalom? David, he's stolen the hearts of your people. He's claimed your throne. He's gone into your concubines. He's driven you from your city. He's amassed an army to take your life. He'd kill you himself if he had the chance. 
deal gently with Absalom. Why, David? Why? Only we're not told why. Not yet. The narrator simply establishes for now the fact that David orders this. The battle commences, verses 6 through 8 of our chapter are are the whole thing. The army went out, the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim, it says. There's a debate about where that is exactly, we'll just bypass that for now. Verse 7, and the men of Israel, which means the men who are with Absalom, because in chapter 17, verse 24, it said, Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. And verse 8 then explains something of how David's men did it. The forest devoured more people that day than the sword, the narrator says. Meaning David's commanders knew what they were doing. They'd forced Absalom's army into what was probably a thickly wooded region of rough terrain with ravines and marshes and cliffs and so on. And it's almost as though the land itself turned against the people to whom it had been given by the Lord. which seems to be precisely the point our narrator wants to make about one incident in particular then in verses 9 to 18. After verses 6 to 8, you know which side wins the battle. What our narrator wants to focus on is what happened to Absalom, who evidently hadn't intended to make an appearance, but there he was in verse 9, and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. But let me suggest to you that there really isn't such a thing as happened to meet by chance in Hebrew thought. Absalom happens to meet David's servants because the Lord purposes it. We saw the last time that we were in Samuel how the narrator was clear on this as to the Lord's stance vis-a-vis Absalom Back in chapter 17, verse 14, the narrator told us that the Lord had defeated the military council of Ahithophel there so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And here it is. For Absalom, this is where the events of chapters 17 and 18 will culminate. It would seem perhaps he hurries off He and his mule go under a large oak tree. Maybe he was looking back. And his head caught fast in the oak, verse 9 tells us. The branches were thick, the narrator says. The text then says he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. It's, It's just one of these marvelous little moments in Hebrew narrative where in a subtle sort of way the narrator tells you everything you need to know. The mule, or in some cases the donkey, was the royal mode of transport in David's day, which means that the throne Absalom sought now ran out from under him. And there he is caught, helpless, powerless, suspended between heaven and earth. 
countless commentators suggest Absalom's been caught by the own his own hair that he took such pride in, but you'll notice the text doesn't tell us that explicitly. And that's not all. Verse 10 then says, And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak which once again is meant to communicate perhaps more than we may realize when we first read it, because the word that's used there for a hanging in verse 10 is found in other places in the Old Testament, but when you look at it, the word usually refers to hanging people up in judgment or for public shaming of someone who's been executed. Most significantly, famously, It's the term that's used twice in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, where a man who's punished appropriately by death is then hung on a tree. For, verse 23 says, a hanged man is cursed by God. See, Absalom isn't dead yet in the narrative, but the point's already been made by the narrator. His hanging from a tree wasn't an accident. Absalom's fate was a judgment from God's own hand. And that's not all. Jump ahead for a moment to verse 17. Look at how he's buried. And they took Absalom, it says, and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. That's the burial of an accursed man. It's quite similar, for example, to Joshua chapter 7, verse 26, where Achan, having been put to death for his sacrilege, is buried under a large pile of stones. It's quite like Joshua chapter 8, verse 29, where the king of Ai, having been hanged on a tree, is thrown in a pit, some manuscripts say, and covered with a large pile of stones. This is the fate of the one who would destroy Yahweh's chosen king. One commentator writes, we must see that Absalom's end is a microcosm. His death as a man under the curse is typical of what will be the lot of all who at any time set themselves against God's kingdom, his chosen king or his people. This is a somber truth, but Yahweh's true subjects have no hope unless it is true. Listen to the language of Psalm 94, verses 12 and 13. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until... A pit is dug for the wicked. There's even a final end note provided for us in verse 18 of our passage. The narrator says, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's Monument 
to this day. Which is quite the way to close off the account of Absalom, isn't it? It was customary in the ancient world for rulers to make monuments for themselves to celebrate their accomplishments by means of stone inscriptions. But that was not customary in Israel. In fact, we're told of only two individuals in the entire Old Testament who made monuments to themselves. Two Israelite individuals, at least. One's Absalom in this text. And do you remember the other one? (laughs) It was Saul in 1 Samuel 15. The battle was over now. Joab blew the trumpet. Verse 16 says, And the troops came back from pursuing Israel. No need to keep up the fight. Joab had done what Joab fully believed he had to do. Never mind David's order. The certain man of our passage who saw Absalom in the tree had not acted. That man defends his decision convincingly enough in verses 12 and 13. David had ordered Absalom to be protected. And Had he gone through with killing Absalom, that soldier knew better than to expect support from Joab, right? Well, Joab would have been glad for the outcome, but he would have had no concern for the consequences on the man who disobeyed the king's orders. I will not waste time like this with you, Joab says in verse 18, uh, excuse me, verse 14, in response to the man's explanation. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Which is what takes us now right into the tension of this narrative. As we come then to the second part of our passage that begins in verse 19. Because if what I've just spent all that time on is right, Absalom deserved to die. The narrator, in fact, seems to indicate the Lord's hand was in it. That the Lord intended to bring harm to Absalom. That the perspective of the narrator on that point, I'm arguing for you, is clear. I think think we're meant to see that. I think we're meant to see even in verse 19. This thing as well. I think the narrator's perspective is the same as what Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, says is true. Look at verse 19. Then Ahimaaz said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And the word for delivered there, that's not the language of salvation that we often find in these military contexts. Here it's the language of justice. It's literally the term judged. It's often translated judged elsewhere in Samuel. In the biblical sense of to bring justice to a situation, to put things right. That's the point. The rebel has been justly overthrown. 
The one who was rightly king was restored. Let me be the one to take that news to the king, he says to Joab. Only Joab knew that wasn't such a good idea. Because as much as Joab believed it was necessary that Absalom be killed, Joab knew what David had ordered. The king's son is dead, he says. And look, it's not hard to see where Joab is coming from, is it? Joab liquidates Absalom because from Joab's perspective, it's politically necessary to do that. There is no alternative. The narrator says nothing of Joab's motivations. But I think it's clear enough. Joab's utterly convinced that David's instruction is folly. Joab sees, he thinks, more clearly than David that to allow Absalom to live would just pave the way for permanent unrest in Israel, maybe even civil war. So Joab acts. As one commentator puts it, by the final elimination of the incorrigible prince, Joab consciously assumes a king's responsibility for the state, which in Joab's opinion, David neglects or as a sentimental father is unable to bear. That is not an unreasonable way to understand Joab here. We'll see it even more clearly in his response to David's grief later in chapter 19. Let's catch up the story and then try to sort out what may be going on. The news then comes to David by way of both Ahimaaz and the Cushite. And there's a remarkable amount of ink spent on this odd situation. Back in verses 21 and following, Joab finds the Cushite. That means someone who's from Cush, which is a territory south of Egypt. So this is a foreigner who is evidently known to Joab. It's the Cushite someone who had obviously attached himself to King David, fought for King David, and now Joab sends the Cushite to David with the news. Ahimaaz insists that he also be allowed to run with the news. Joab eventually permits it. There's then two messengers. Surprisingly, it's Ahimaaz who gets to David first because he knows a faster route, evidently. In verse 24, the narrative has shifted then to David's perspective. David's still there at the gates. A watchman sees the two men who are running alone, which is a good thing because it means they're not part of some retreating army, but instead they're running to bring news of some kind. David becomes unrealistically hopeful, I think, when he hears it's Ahimaaz who's coming. The end of verse 27, David says, he is a good man and comes with good news, which is nothing more than wishful thinking on David's part. But sort of turns out to be right because Ahimaaz only tells David of the victory and not about Absalom. So it's the Cushite who comes with the full report. And let's read that again in verse 31. And behold, the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king 
and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Which is diplomatic, but unambiguous. And then comes the most remarkable verse 33 as the conclusion of chapter 18. And just look at it again for a moment. You are here now at what many scholars will say is arguably the most humanly moving scene in the Old Testament. One commentator says this is one of the most moving verses in the entire Bible. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, Would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And here's the thing. Seems to me like something's different about David here. I don't know if you feel that. In fact, most of the rest of the sermon, you're just going to have to go away and think about whether you think or not I'm right. I'm right or not. But this strikes me as not being like earlier episodes. When David's first child by Bathsheba dies in chapter 12, it's true David had had been pouring himself out to the Lord for that child, but then David's servants are quite surprised as David sort of quickly carries on. And then when Amnon, David's oldest son, is murdered by Absalom's men in chapter 13, we get a little more emotion there. The text says, somewhat straightforwardly, the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. No doubt David's response was deeply emotional in both of those cases, but something else is happening at the end of chapter 18. At least I can say our narrator wants us to see and feel and hear David's anguish. If he were just a mere historian, it would have been far more concise than all this. Just say something like, Joab sent the king news of the battle, and when David learned that Absalom had perished, he went into deep mourning. Be true. Our text is 20 times longer than that. It's concerned with describing David's state of mind from within. It gradually builds up in a narrative, dramatic way to this nadir of David's great mourning. Joab can't abide it. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 to 8 there again, just briefly. It's told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. The narrator then says, So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. This wasn't expected. David's response affects his men severely. Right? Verse 3, The people stole into the city, the narrator says quite evocatively. 
They stole into that city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle, which is exactly the opposite of what had happened. This isn't good. Joab knows that. So verse 5, And Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you, David, love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Note Joab's anger over David's response. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. I <laughs> mean, That's strong stuff. But Joab's desperate. And if you think about it, it, it's actually a bit hard to argue that he's entirely wrong here. Or maybe you don't think he's wrong at all. I mean, David's behavior does seem to risk alienating his followers, subverting the kingdom itself, at least from what we can see, as Joab sees it. David's indulgence of his emotions will destroy the morale of the army upon which his political survival will depend. And so then watch now as Joab commands David in verse 7. Now therefore arise, David, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And David, let it be noted, evidently sees the wisdom in what Joab is saying. So in verse 8, he takes his seat in the gate. And the last line of our passage reads, And all the people came before the king. Which means we're left now, dear friends, with this question. What are we to make of David in this passage? Why does he ask that Absalom be spared? And then why the intensity of David's grief? And I have to tell you, I'm not sure. (laughs) I've spent a lot of time wrestling with what to say about this. All I feel I can do is offer you some thoughts that I have here at the end, and you'll sense where I'm going with this. The traditional reading of this text is that David's being a fool. That his parental sentimentality has trumped justice. So that Joab was therefore justified, the argument goes, for taking Absalom's life and then for scolding David as he does for his inappropriate, perhaps even his irrational behavior after learning of Absalom's death. And there is something to all that. Because we've discussed how the Lord clearly purposed to bring harm on Absalom. We've seen how the narrator makes it clear Absalom was cursed by God was buried accordingly. David seems to recognize Joab is right to some degree in the end, that his intense reaction to Absalom's death could potentially harm the kingdom. 
but I'm not entirely happy with that explanation. (laughs) And I have to tread cautiously here, so I give you all kinds of caveats and say that I don't know this for sure. But something about that traditional interpretation just wouldn't settle for me. What if David's desire to spare Absalom wasn't merely parental sentimentality? If our reading of the recent narratives of 2 Samuel has been accurate, we've seen David's faith gain strength since his departure from Jerusalem. I've argued that. A departure, you would recall, that is caused by the impending arrival of Absalom to that city. And you remember maybe in chapter 16 how after a series of encounters with others on the road out of Jerusalem, Shimei curses David in Bahurim in chapter 16. Do you remember that? Do you remember David's response? Chapter 16, verse 11. Behold, David said, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. That wasn't the expected response to an enemy of the king. It was none other than Joab and Abishai who wanted to do away with him. But David, we saw, had arrived at something of a new place. He had found a new strength of trusting the Lord. And I think here now coming full circle from where we have been since David's double sin of adultery and murder back in chapters 11 and 12, I think it has to be on David's mind as he is exiled from Jerusalem that he himself had experienced God's grace when he had behaved as wickedly as his son is behaving. Brothers and sisters, could it be that at this point, having come through the lowest part, the lowest time in his kingdom, only to rediscover the grace and provision of the Lord in his life in chapter 17 and and right before that. Could it be that David's desire to spare Absalom was in fact the unexpected expression of a forgiving father? Rooted somehow in David's own experience of having been forgiven by God. Not that David was naive. I don't mean that. He knew this was the Absalom who had publicly embarrassed him, who was now aggressively attempting to kill him. Absalom wouldn't have spared David's life had the roles been reversed. David knew that. But even though Absalom deserved nothing but his condemnation, I think it just might be possible here to understand that David was now at a place where he was ready to forgive his son. 
and if necessary, even to trade his own life for that of his son. Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. I don't doubt that David's own guilt was aggravating his sense of grief. It may be that David was merely wishing that he had, in fact, died long ago in place of Absalom because David knew he had deserved to die. The Lord had spared him that. That's a reasonable understanding of the text, but I don't know if you'll permit it. Let me leave you with a suggestion that maybe it's something more than that. That maybe in some way we're meant to see that David here, in fact, reflects something of the heart of God. The God of whom Psalm 103, verses 9 and following says, he will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. So I ask you, was it weakness when David gave the order not to kill his rebellious son? Joab thought so. And so Joab sees that justice wins. And from everything I've said, maybe that's how it had to be. After all, as sincere and moving as David's wish to die in Absalom's place might be, it wouldn't have solved anything in the end. The sinful king wouldn't be able to save his sinful son from the consequences of his rebellion. But I just can't help but think there was something right about David's cry. Not that David would have been conscious of all the larger significance of his words, but when the great son of David eventually came, he would come to die instead of his enemies. He himself did say he came to be a ransom for, or you could translate Matthew 20, verse 28, He came to be a ransom instead of many. For while we were still weak, Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 6 and following, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have now received reconciliation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.